Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Knight. He is Honorary Professor in the Department of Anthropology at University College London. Over many years, he has been exploring the idea that human language and culture emerged in our species not purely through gradual Darwinian evolution, but in a cumulative process culminating in sudden revolutionary change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Knight, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. A pleasure. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell us then uh, what is your approach to how language evolved? Well, uh, my own view is that there can be no such thing as a theory of the origins of language. Uh, and there just can't be such a thing. And the reason for that is that language is not a thing. Language did not emerge in the course of Darwinian evolution. Language is not a part of nature and it, it evolved as a component of something much wider. So I think we can have a theory of the origins of human symbolic culture, which would include the emergence of uh, ritual, the emergence of formal kinship systems, the establishment of what are called institutional facts, uh, in, in many ways, the establishment of a whole virtual realm of reality that we humans inhabit, constructed, as, as classical social anthropology says, by, by ritual. And language is a component of that. But the idea that language can have evolved independently, a thing called language just evolves in nature, as a part of nature, we know that that's impossible because um, Darwinian signal evolution theory, particularly the version uh, put forward by Amit Zahavi, who really for the first time explained how and why signals in nature evolve, he just said, well, language, yes, good idea, be a very good idea to have digital communication as precise as language is, but forget it, it won't ever happen. Um, and the reason it won't happen in nature is because uh, in nature you'll always get sufficient conflict and competition between individuals to require those individuals to only accept uh, signals which can be trusted. Uh, in other words, hard to fake body language of some sort or another. So uh, Zahavi's explained why language, why very intelligent, close, great ape relatives of ours, orangutans, gibbons, chimpanzees, um, bonobos, gorillas, it's not just that they don't have language, they don't even have the very beginnings of grammar in their communication systems. I mean, some people have argued, of course, that they have a certain ability to possibly communicate using, combining one sound with another. But I mean, you know, of grammar, there's nothing. I think all linguists would agree with that. Why? And, and, and it's just because it's a theoretical impossibility. So I like the idea that language is a, would be a good idea, but it won't happen. Okay, so language is then the result of cultural processes? Language is a system for navigating within virtual reality. Hmm. So when you and I are talking, nothing that's going on in my room, your room, around you, is we're not we're not navigating within the world of brute facts. We're navigating within a virtual world. And if you don't inhabit a virtual world, and chimpanzees inhabit the real world, you won't. Not only won't you need language, but language will be impossible because you'll be need, needing to navigate within a world of brute facts, which requires some costly signals. And this, the, the the fundamental components of of language are zero cost. They're digits. It costs absolutely nothing to switch the message 
we will meet you tomorrow to we will eat you tomorrow we just re removed the first consonants of a, of a word remove the m it costs nothing with all animal signaling has a certain cost they might not be very costly but all animal signals are in you can say our body language of some sort or another and language is not body language it has a component of body language you can say that para language is you know things like intonation and amplitude and so on are body language but what a, a theoretical linguist would describe as language um, the, the signals, you know, the, 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 the distinctive features, if you like, in, in, in terms of Jacobson's theory of the, the phonology of language, there's zero cost signals and you can't get zero cost signaling in the real world. You can only get it in virtual reality because in virtual reality, you don't need muscles, you don't need effort, you don't need energy. You just need to specify. So, but what do you make of the arguments put forth, for example, by uh, language nativists where they point to the fact that, for example, it's very easy for uh, small children to learn the language even without any sort of uh, direct teaching and the fact that in all human societies people have language and things like that? Well, I, I totally agree with them. I mean, I, th I think the idea that little children have to have grammar sort of drummed into them the way, the way they might have to have algebra or something drummed into them would be uh, the, the behaviorist paradigm is definitely gone. So language is an instinct. Um, and there's no question about that. Children have an appetite and, uh, to acquire the, 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 the most theoretically complex structure we're aware of, which is the grammar of a natural language. There's no question about that. But how did that evolve? Um, to me, it's the play instinct. Chimpanzees, other animals, when they're young, it's, certainly they have capacity for very creative play. Um, it's, so I, I disagree with Chomsky and others who think that this language instinct came from nowhere. To me, it's a specialized form of the instinct for social play, for let's pretend, if you like. But um, what we have to explain, um, because you know, having having this play instinct is you know it's continuous with the other instincts that we share with uh, non-human primates. What we have to explain is how that play instinct, if you like, that instinct for social play, became, in our case, at least one one strand of that instinct became the the instinct for acquiring the grammar of a language. And you wouldn't get that instinct evolving in that direction if language wasn't being used, and it wouldn't be used if we didn't if if we didn't inhabit virtual reality. And language doesn't create virtual reality, it, it requires it. What creates a virtual world is something much more subtle. And sometimes natural scientists aren't even aware of this. They're not aware that it's actually the, the, the ritual practices of a society which generate the, the shared illusions, if you like, the shared structures uh, which make up symbolic culture. So we need a theory to explain the emergence of communal ritual, um, and uh, and and then of course once you've got ritual, you'll you'll get language as well. You'll, you'll get language for those who are share this. It's like one way of saying it is to say language only works for those who share the same gods. You have to share the same fundamentals of belief for, for example, metaphor to work. Otherwise, you'll just assume that metaphors are lies and deceits. But when you have the same um, grounding of, of assumptions and you know about mor morality and purpose and all sorts of things you inhabit the same virtual reality um, then you, you, you know, language will work and, it, and in the case of the evolution of, of genus homo we need to explain the whole thing the whole the whole range of things which uh, make us human music religion sexual morality other forms of morality and then language it, 
would have evolved from the play instinct um, as, a, as a specialized form of that instinct for social play uh, within that framework. And do you have any explanation as to how language evolved from the play instinct? Yes, I mean, <laughs> I do have a theory, um, but I don't know how much you want to explain the whole theory. Uh, you know, um, so I, okay, um, whew, it's a big, it's a big question, and, and my theory is very simple. It, it, it boils down to a very simple thing. Um, the first word was no. Um, and it was spoken by women, and that no was not just a, a whispered, like you know, vowel and consonant. It was you, in order to signal no to receivers who perhaps don't want to hear the sound of no, like the, you know the male sex. In the case of a, a primate male, may want not to hear no when, when it comes to sex. So that sound, that that word, if you like, would have to be acted out in a performance which was convincing. And didn't um, didn't tolerate any any resistance. So that would be an example, for example, of ritual. So a, a bunch of evolving human females signalling no sex in body language would give you, if you like, the first form of, of a moral signal, establishment of a moral rule: no sex unless we say so. So, I mean, you know, that might sound a bit startling. It's not the kind of thing linguists want to hear. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with normal sort of assumptions. But I can tell you now, if you don't have any form of sexual morality in a society, language won't work. Everyone will be screaming and shouting. There'll be very, very deep-rooted conflict and violence between more or less everybody. And, and if you want an example of that, just look at a, a, a Gombe, you know, chimpanzees, um, in, in, you know, as described by Richard Wrangham or Jane Goodall. I mean, these these creatures are very closely related to us, but uh, the males dominate the females. The most, you know, in general, the, you know, the alpha male tends to have more sex than anyone else. Every single male can is, is even however strong will dominate uh, over any female, and, will, and as he as he becomes of, comes of age, he will he will assert that dominance. And um, and so you don't have a lot of trust because the very the root the deepest root of social mistrust, I would say in all among all primates, humans included, is sexual mistrust. So in, you you've got to get unprecedented levels of social trust right across the community, to have sufficient trust, for these cheap signals called words. Words cost nothing; they can easily be lies. For those to be reliable, for humans to rely on them within a community, there has to be unprecedented. Um, intensity of trust, and that does presuppose um, sexual uh, trust, and therefore collectively impose rules of sexual uh, conduct. And once you've got that, you've got sufficient trust for the play instinct, for this, if you like, the expressions of play, and maybe gesture and sound. Um, to be, once you've got a, a sufficient trust not to need costly signals, those. Um, those elements of body language would become reduced to shorthands. So, and the further your, the process of conventionalization and reduction to shorthand goes, the closer you'll get those elements of shorthand, the closer they will, they will approximate towards what we see as the, uh, as the, as the basic um, units of language, the, you know, the distinctive features and the, and the semantic uh, concepts associated with them. So if you like, language is pretend play reduced to shorthand but it won't get reduced to shorthand without a very substantial amount of trust. And the amount of trust is off the scale 
where Darwinism concerned. In, in a Darwinian social world, chimpanzees inhabit a Darwinian social world. We evolved through Darwinian selection, but we, we for, for reasons which we could go into, we, we've transcended the logic of social Darwinism, if you like. A human society is not, is not purely Darwinian. We were, we, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to cast doubt on Darwinism. There's no other way in which we could have become the species we are, except Darwinian natural selection. But in this, we are the result of a, of, of a special case of, of Darwinian natural selection, where that level of, of interaction was transcended. And we, when we inhabit, each of us, a, a, a morally regulated community, maybe not very well regulated, maybe all sorts of things happen in the societies which shouldn't happen. But uh, go to any hunter-gatherer camp and you'll be very well aware that there are, there are rules, okay? And, um, and moral rules are, are absolutely fundamental. And in all the world's religions, there's this fundamental principle, which is that some things are sacred and the body above all uh, needs to be sacred for any kind of uh, morality to work, which would explain why in the world's religions sex plays such a fundamental role. You know, the fundamental taboos in all the world's religions are, are, are around sex for a, for a very good reason. So what I'm, so what I'm saying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to link things which aren't normally linked. Nobody, apart from myself, as, as far as I'm aware, and may, may, maybe some of the people that, you know, that, that have been following in, to some extent, my logic, particularly the proto-language um, people in, in, in Torun, but very few people want to link language, say, with sex. And I think you have to, because if you don't have any form of sexual regulation, you won't get language, because there'll be too much chaos, there'll be too much harassment, threat, violence, and people will be screaming at each other, more or less the way chimpanzees do. You know, whimper, scream, sob, cry. I mean, all the various hoots and calls made by chimpanzees, they're made because there's insufficient trust for, lang for anything like language to evolve. And we, and we know that there's, there's nothing else is the, is the problem because we know they're not stupid. We know that if you bring up chimpanzees within a morally regulated framework, like you, you adopt a chimpanzee or a bonobo into your family, and, uh, you know, and you, 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 they're, they're now in a cultural realm. And, um, and we, we, ju we just know that chimpanzees can get the basics of American Sign Language or any other form of sign language. But, but the, pre the precondition of that is that they're listened to and respected in a way which they wouldn't be in the wild. Yeah, but, but in the case of chimpanzees, for example, don't they have certain brain and other anatomical limitations that would, uh, would not make them capable of producing language, even if they were exposed to the, those sort of cultural, uh, I mean, a sort of cultural milieu with all those sorts of institutions and rules and so on. Well, that's a very familiar argument to me, that, that the chimpanzees don't have language because they're defective. They're defective in some way. They haven't got the right component of the brain or they've got an inflexible tongue. I mean, it's an unimaginable number of explanations for why chimpanzees don't have language and I think they're all completely nonsense. No animal ever evolved with an inflexible tongue or, or with an inadequate brain. I mean these, these creatures have got pretty much what it takes to have some kind of language. Um, I mean and we know that simply because you know when, when you have a bonobo, you know Kanzi and others within a human family, they do, they do amazingly and, they, and, it's, and it's not simply that they adopt American Sign Language, they can actually invent creatively invent terms as you know, I'm sure you know about, about all this you know what's a radish 
I could, you may you probably know more than I do now, but I mean, I, you may remember which particular bonobo it was that called a rabbit a, a radish a cry fruit, and I think it was one of Roger Fuchs's chimpanzees that called him a shit. You know, the, the chimpanzee wasn't happy with his behaviour, and he knew the word the chimp knew the word for shit, and suddenly invented a metaphor to call a person a shit is a metaphorical expression. So they have sufficient intelligence to produce some kind of language, maybe not as anywhere near as sophisticated as humans have, but the puzzle is why no language, given their extraordinarily social, sophisticated social intelligence and the fact that their tongue and, and vocal organs and so on are just as flexible as ours. How, how is it they have zero language? I mean, we need to understand the blockage. The blockage is not an anatomical or cognitive defect. The blockages are social. That's what I need everyone to understand. The blockages are political and social. And remove those social and political blockages, and even chimpanzees would begin to get on the road toward language. So with all of that in mind, and perhaps those prerequisites for people to develop language, is it possible to say where exactly in our hominin lineage language would have uh, emerged? Well, I'm a great fan of Sarah Hurdy. Um, and, and Sarah Hurdy argues, as I'm sure you know, along with, uh, and, and it's Sarah Hurdy with Christian Hawkes and Camilla Power and many others have worked out, in my view, a very, a very good theory to explain uh, the transition, at least, from some kind of australopithecine to, to genus Homo, and it all has to do with female strategies, um, and uh, and it, it's about living with mum, living with being able to share childcare with your mum, with your sisters, and um, so somewhere around uh, that transition to genus Homo, two million years ago, maybe a little bit more, we would got we would get on the first rung towards the sufficient intersubjectivity. Um, very substantially increased brain size through alloparenting. So, as you know, non-human um, apes, the, every mother is a, is a single mum. She cannot afford too much uh, childcare burden because she's all on her own. One of the reasons she's on her own is because the chimpanzee female has to move out. So when she gets pregnant, she's got no kin, no mother, no sisters to support her. She's, got, she's quite threatened and harassed. She will not dare let anyone else hold her baby. And uh, our model, I'm now, now talking about Kristen Hawkes, um, Sarah Hurdy, Camilla Power, myself, and, and a number of others, we think the critical thing was females reversing the, um, the, the residence rule. So females began living with mum. Chimpanzees can live with mum. They sometimes do. And they do very, female chimps who, who live with their mother instead of moving out, they do very well. They have far more babies than those who move out. Um, but the, uh, probably the reason they don't is because of harassment by their brothers and, and fathers. So they don't want to be ha harassed by, you know, males who are closely related to them. But anyway, so females who, 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 in the course of evolution, began living with their own mother and therefore having childcare support from mum, this is the grandmother hypothesis, of course, and from other females, which is Sarah Hurdy's alloparenting hypothesis, would have been able to give birth to and nurture increasingly larger brained babies. And those babies themselves, if they were if they were handed around from one mother to another mother to another mother, from one carer to another carer, those babies themselves, instead of have, being able to take um, love and care for granted, they'd have needed to solicit and and, and produce their own um, care. And so they became active 
um, solicitors of caring behavior among all those that they came into contact with. And so we get the cooperative eyes, the eyes that for looking in as well as for looking out. We get increasingly large uh, brain size. We get what's called intersubjectivity. Again, I'm sure you're well, well aware of this from Michael Tomasello's work. And Michael mm -hmm. Tomasello agrees with Sarah Hurley on these, on these issues. There's no difference there. And you need, you need that intersubjectivity. You need to be able to look into somebody else's eyes. And as you look into those eyes, see reflected there um, an image of your own mind. So you see yourself as others see you. You, you cannot get that under social conditions of dominance and subordination. You need a level of equality um, and, and trust as well to allow others to read your mind. Uh, and, and without that, you're not going to be able to be, even be aware of your own mind, let alone you know, others. So, I mean, those, those are the kind of factors which got the process off the ground. But having said that, I also think that that, that would have led to something like McDonald's idea of mimesis. So a kind of um, language which was the ability to fake it, to fake tears and sobs and, 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 and all the various sort of body language which chimpanzees have to kind of produce deliberate fakes of those signals um, in order to get messages across. So, you know, if you want to warn somebody not to eat a dangerous mushroom, you pretend to spit it out. And um, or if you want to tell somebody that you're not very happy, you pretend to cry. So all these pretenses, which, which for chimpanzees wouldn't be acceptable because they'd be interpreted as deceits. When you've got sufficient um, alloparenting and, and a sufficient uh, amount of trust and tolerance, you can begin to produce these fakes, which I call honest fakes, because they're, they're not designed to deceive. They're getting towards metaphor now. So when you pretend to cry, you pretend to laugh, you pretend to do all these things, you're beginning to get metaphor. That's the beginning of, you might call it proto-language, a language of, of gesture and, and sounds, which are mimetic. But the full development of, of, of grammatically complex language would need those levels of trust to be established on a permanent basis throughout whole communities. And, and that would have taken a bit longer. And I would date that really with the emergence of, of, of Homo sapiens sometime around 200,000 years ago, 200 to 300,000 years ago. So coincidental with the emergence of um, Homo sapiens. And that was quite a revolutionary process, actually. That, was, that would have been quite a, quite a rapid process of, of development. Mm -hmm. But, for example, earlier we were talking about possible cognitive limitations of other species, particularly some closely related species like chimpanzees and bonobos. But since you mentioned the work by Dr. Michael Tomasello, uh, the fact that in his work he points to developmental steps in child development that we don't find in other in the infants from other species, I mean, doesn't that point to something that is uh, perhaps exclusive to humans that would explain why we acquire language and well, yes, but have, you, have you noticed what those cognitive limitations are? They're all social. <laughs> Uh, and they're all essentially. If you if you if if you've got a, as he points out, you've got a, you've got two buckets, and you've got a chimpanzee, you know, a few yards away from you, and the chimpanzee wants to know in which bucket you put the banana. <laughs> you point to this bucket, and it would go to the other bucket because it's the chimpanzee assumes you're going to be selfish and tricking the animal. So those cognitive, if you like, deficiencies, they're 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 expressions of an extraordinary lack of 
expectation of cooperation in each other. They, they don't. So one of the things which Michael Thomas said, talks about is he, he mentions how um, on one occasion, um, uh, a little infant chimpanzee was whimpering because it lost its mother and it was looking for its mother. And uh, all the other females in the neighborhood, they knew perfectly well where the mother was and they could easily point. I mean, you don't need a lot of grammar to pick up your finger and point in the right direction. They just couldn't be bothered. He just pointed out they got no motivation to help. So, so that, that actually emphasizes my point. The, the point isn't that there's kind of a mysterious cognitive sort of defects in these animals. They're very well equipped, very well adapted to these social conditions which they have evolved within and which they experience. They are, they're well adapted to a life of substantial mistrust and, and conflict, including, of course, at the bottom of it all, sexual conflict. But, um, but on the other hand, when they're young, they play. Um, and they're very playful when young, and, and bonobos, of course, carry on a certain very significant amount of playfulness even when they're adult. And, and very quickly you, surprise, you, you realize that those cognitive limitations themselves have limitations. There's plenty of trust between juveniles playing and between bonobos when, when a bonobo plays with an older male who's already become a, a trusted playmate. It's extraordinary how much creativity and trust uh, in, and, and even the even the beginnings of something remotely, something like metaphor, you can see that those things beginning in those bubbles of trust, if you like, but they're just bubbles. So what I'm saying is that there's nothing really to stop even chimpanzees, give them a few decades, actually probably within, you know, within a community which is organized on a, on, on a moral basis, and they will have sufficient um, cognitive insight and awareness to get some way down the road towards language, including being quite creative about the, the gestures and sounds which they use anyway. So I'm just, I'm, all, I'm not trying to deny the fact that humans are unique and our cognitive structure is, there's no doubt about it, it's different. Human nature is not the same as chimpanzee nature. And I'm absolutely firm about that. I, I agree with Chomsky on those issues. Uh, I don't, not many issues I agree with Chomsky on, but that one I certainly do. There is such a thing as human nature and it is specific to our, our species but um it's 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 not a it's not a it's not a complete break there are very interesting uh, uh, premonitions if you like pre uh, within chimpanzees and bonobos especially of the things which make us human cognitively and they need to be built on and they will only be built on given the um the appropriate social and sexual uh, conditions Okay, but even if we exposed, for example, chimpanzees to those social and sexual conditions, don't you think that there are perhaps some aspects of human language that they wouldn't be able to acquire? Yeah, I agree with you. I think there are some aspects. That's the point I'm making. I think some aspects they would acquire and some aspects they wouldn't. And that's simply because they, they have not been under those selection pressures that we have our species has been under um but i mean okay i mean just one point is that the bonobos are better at acquiring for example american sign language than common chimpanzees i wonder why well i mean have you noticed that bonobos have a relative very little rape i think no infanticidal rape pretty much among wild living bonobos much more harmonious relationships much more female solidarity and power much more like the, the males are much more if you like domesticated um, and, so, and so you'll find that they're, you know, even though the bonobos have, I think, been um, diverged from, 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 from common chimps, 
only about a million years ago. They've only had a million years of evolution to, to make, to, you know, establish those differences. They're already quite significantly different cognitively. So, you know, give, give us two million years, uh, which, are, which is the kind of time scale I'm thinking of, um, you know, I mean, and, and a lot could have happened, it would have, in my view, must have happened. Mm -hmm. But, I, I mean, your approach to language, would it also apply to understanding how different languages evolve? That's a very good question, and the answer is yes. For me, the extraordinary thing is the degree to which throughout nearly all the 20th century, the most wonderful theory developed by the French linguist Meillet, grammaticalization theory, was marginalized. And so grammaticalization is the process through, through which grammatical markers um, evolve historically. Um, and me and metaphor, metaphor is at the root of that. So I absolutely think, yes, there's no question that, that gra grammars evolved by processes which are now very well understood and and the divergence between languages they they we can we, we're very well aware these days how and why those processes um take place um so but but on the other hand the the, the because, precisely because the the root principle is um metaphor um and because metaphor means telling lies um you know the essence of a metaphor is that it's a false statement and so you, you have to have a situation where you hear somebody making a false statement and instead of getting annoyed with it, you, 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 know, you, you value that false statement, that fiction, as a cue to a communicative intention. Um, now, that, that getting to that point where you have a whole community where everybody is prepared to take falsehoods, not as falsehoods, but as cues to communicative intentions, that would need a, a you know a substantial I, I would say actually a revolutionary break i mean the word revolution is a little bit you know maybe a bit fuzzy i, mean, I still believe that some kind of human revolution must have got us to where where we are today with our extraordinary you know symbolic cultural um, you know products and capacities but um, but yes so the, pro the the process of grammaticalization are now very well understood but to get any kind of grammaticalization, any kind of ratchet effect in terms of the ratchet you know, accumulation of gr grammatical complexities over historical time, you'd need a, a profound social change. That's, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. So uh, I also wanted to try to understand a little bit better the relationship between language and culture. So you mentioned, for example, cultural norms regarding sex. I mean, do you think that uh, humans have evolved specific capacities that allow them, for them to have culture in ways that we don't find in other species? I mean, do you think that culture in humans is the result of uh, Darwinian uh, selection, or is it, uh, or is it also that uh, the way uh, or, or the way human culture works is also the result of the kinds of social contexts we live in, as happen, as you say, happens with language, for example. Well, fortunately, we now know much more than we did um, 40, 50 years ago about culture in chimpanzees and bonobos. And we know that uh, among chimpanzees, cultural traditions vary very significantly. 
Um, and we have, in many cases, extraordinarily complex tool kits. Um, from, for example, for extracting honey from a, a bee's nest underground, you need about six different tools. You've got to make them, you've got to keep them, you've got to use them in the right sequence. Uh, and yet we also know that in other areas, um, at Gombe and perhaps in particular, we just don't get anywhere near such complex um, cultural traditions of tool manufacture and use. Um, so, um, what is the explanation for this? And again, I much, much, much prefer um, a social explanation from a mentalist or cognitive um, explanation. So, um, one of the features, of course, is that um, male filipatry, which of course means um, females having to move out and males staying in their home territory, that has a, that has a quite a dis, quite a decisive effect on cultural transmission and it's a negative effect. So when when young chimpanzees learn, for example, um, in the Thai forest or some part of West, the, you know, the Western range of the, you know, the range of wild living chimpanzees, when ch young chimpanzees learn how to say, use a big stone to put a nut, a large nut on another stone and then crack it to, you know, to extract the kernel, who do they learn that from? They don't learn it from their father. Their fathers are nowhere. You know, the father's kind of all over the place looking for sex, of course. The, the young chimpanzee learns it from its mother. So cultural transmission overwhelmingly, and this has been documented by all the primatologists, overwhelmingly goes through the female line. It goes from mother to son as well as daughter. So you're not going to get, you've got, as long as you've got male filipatry, what you've got is, a, is, a, is an obstacle to the ratchet effect, to the, to the, to the, to the, to the um, continuous accumulation of cultural innovations and um, because what if you I, I could put it in reverse I can say once you've got females on coming mature living with mum then those females can acquire from their mother not just um, cultural techniques of tool use but childcare techniques all kinds of tips about breastfeeding and stuff so all kinds of things suddenly come into play once mothers are able to pass on their traditions, their cultural knowledge to their, to their, not just to their young offspring, but to their offspring as they in turn are coming of age. So what I'm trying to say is one of the critical things is, is of course the ratchet effect. We all know that, and I'm arguing that the ratchet effect doesn't, when it when it comes comes into play and leads to the very complex cultural traditions that we humans have, the that 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 the beginning of the ratchet effect, if you like. I don't think it comes because suddenly there was some mutation in the brain. And it enabled us to memorize things better. Again, I think it was a, a cultural thing. And the cultural thing in, in particular was that it's through the matcha line, even with chimpanzees, that culture gets transmitted. And if you keep breaking the matcha line at that point of, of the point where of coming of coming of age, if you keep breaking it, you're gonna be you're gonna interrupt the, the, the accumulation of cultural tra uh, traditions. So living with mum not only meant childcare consequences. In, in terms of the ability to, to raise babies with, you know, with, who are more demanding, and of course larger brain babies would be the more more demanding, but it would also have to, um, effects in terms of cultural transmission. So, what you just explained, do you think, is the explanation for the fact that humans have cumulative culture and other species don't? The fact that. Um, <laughs> The fact that in, the, in our case, the evolving human female 
maintained links with her mum. So a matrilocal logic, as opposed to a patrilocal logic, um, took over. That was the key thing, in my view. Living with mum was the key transition, instead of having to move out. But, uh, but I mean, uh, uh, let me see if I understand this treaty. Isn't it the case that it's documented that in human societies, it's women who move to the household of their uh, husband when, so when they marry. I'm so glad you've come out with this. It's so brilliant. <laughs> because it's such a, it's completely and totally and utterly wrong. I really need you to look up the references on all this. This is such a terrible error that people make this. And it's, it's, it's cataclysmic because it just means that so many scientists know nothing at all about hunter-gatherer ethnography but not even about the modern developments in genetics um, of hunter-gatherers. So if I could just explain quite briefly, in the case of all um, immediate return hunter-gatherers, immediate return means non-storage. So hunter-gatherers that don't store food or other forms of property. So, um, so all, pretty much all African hunter-gatherers these days who still survive, uh, Hadza, the Kalahari to some extent, but very many of them in the, in the, in the, in the rainforest of the, of the Congo, immediate return hunter-gatherers. Um, what happens is that, a, that when, they, when a woman comes of age, she lives with her mum, and the, the, young, the young man that she wants to have a relationship with, that she fancies, he, he has to visit her. He visits her in her camp. So we have, and that's called matrilocal residence. If it was primates, we would call it female philopatry. Now it's true that that may only last for the, you know, for a while, but for the first baby, until the first baby's been born, maybe the second baby, a man has to visit his bride, his wife, and by the way, he never gets conjugal rights in his wife. It's called bride service. And I'm so astonished that this is one of the consequences of the, um, the partitioning of academic knowledge these days, that nobody knows what the other, other people are doing, and even on the other floor of their university. There's horrendous... I don't know, almost lack of interest in, 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 in putting things together. But anyway, bride service is the fundamental economic institution of hunter-gatherers. And we just have to remember something very important. that language was not invented by herders, by pastoralists, by farmers, by city dwellers. Language was invented by hunter-gatherers. It emerged when we were all hunter-gatherers. And among all egalitarian hunter-gatherers or immediate return hunter-gatherers, Bride service is the fundamental economic institution. And it means that a man has to earn his sexual relationships. He has to please his in-laws. He has to please his wife and her kin. And the way he does that, if he's a hunter, is by being generous and modest as well with the meat which he supplies. He has to supply the meat, but he hasn't, mustn't be boastful about it. He must just get on with the job, maybe meet up with his friends and, and you know, hunt a zebra or something and bring the meat back. And if he, if he, if he doesn't do that, it doesn't matter if he's been with, his, with a woman for three or four years, so it doesn't matter if he's got a baby. That, that woman and her mother, and maybe backed up by their brothers, will just say, you're no good, you're useless, go and find somewhere else to live. And he's got no choice. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken with Hadza, and, you know, and my partner Camilla, but many of my, my colleagues, they've done you know, years of work with hunter-gatherers, and I spoke with a Hadza man, and I just said, you know, he, I won't go into his name, but he just said to me, Chris, he said, um, I could be married to a woman, um, and, she, and I could have just be, we could have got married 
married. It's hardly, they don't have weddings, of course, but they have, they've, they've, had, they've formed a relationship, to put it that way. He said, we could have formed a relationship and I've, I think I'm doing well, we're getting on fine. And then a couple of days later, even a week later, she says, sorry, I've changed my mind. Okay, and that's it. She's changed her mind. <laughs> He's going to go somewhere else. Now, obviously, that doesn't, you know, eventually people settle down with each other. Um, but with, if you just take the Hadza, re initial residence is matter local. Um, the, 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 the grass hut, is, it belongs to the woman, um, not the man. He has to build it for her, but it belongs to her. And if she's fed up with a, with a guy, he's got to go. And, um, and if he argues about that, well, he'll soon find he's up against a, a wall of hostility because he will find he's arguing with not just the woman herself, the young woman herself, but her mother, her sisters, her brothers will turn up and he better, he better listen, he better go. He's, he's, he's failed, he's, he's not measured up, he's, he's been lazy, he's been, he may, anything he's done which is like not respectful, um, he, you know, that's, that's the end of his relationship. Luckily, it doesn't matter too much because, you know, he'll probably find somebody else because relationships are fairly, you know, they come and go. Kinship is for life, you don't, you don't have, an, no one's an ex-brother. You can't say, this is my ex-brother, this is my ex-sister, this is my ex-mother. The kinship is for life, but sexual partners, on average, probably a woman would have a different sexual partner for each child. And those relationships are never permanent. Sexual relationships are never permanent. And they can't be, because if, it was, if a man was allowed permanent relationships with a woman, why would he bother with bride service? If you've got your woman already, why do you need to behave, you know, by being generous to her in-laws? You've got your... So anyway, so now I want to come to the second part of your thing when you said that you think that most hunter-gatherers are patrilocal. The thing is, we now know, because <laughs> there's been a massive lot of work of uh, amount of um, very uh, brilliant um, paleogenetics. So I, 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 I can't name the, the, the. It's all in my. You can find it in my, in my papers, but you can look it on the website yourself if you like. But um, the geneticists have now taken a hair from the head of hunter-gatherers across Africa and compared them with the, the genetic sequences of, you just need a hair from a, from a, for the head of a person here, a person here. So to take farmers, take cattle herders, take hunter-gatherers, and it's just been, and they've worked out that um, over the many generations, we can't quite be sure how many thousands of years, with hunter-gatherers, you can, you can just look at the genes and through the female line, you can, you can tell women have been living with mum, living with mum, living with mum, living with mum. So the, 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 um, the, the, the particular little, little patterns of genetics are localized in one area through the match line and dispersed when, it, when you come to nuclear DNA, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Y chromosome across the landscape. And it's a reverse with the, with the farmers. So it, it's just showing that, yes, you're right, women move out when they get married among farmers and pastoralists mostly not all pastoralists but mostly but these women stay with their mum among immediate return hunter-gatherers at least for the first few years of life of married life and very often much more permanently and bride service wouldn't work any other way women need in order for bride service to, to work women need leverage and, and leverage means you make the man come to you uh, and behave <clears throat> Okay, but uh, I mean, if there's those changes between hunter-gatherer societies and pastoralists and farmers, I mean, wouldn't that have any implications when it comes to uh, dynamics regarding human culture and language? 
well, I mean, I mean, yes, yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, it's true that a very major changes occur when the, when the lines of, of residence change. If you switch from matrilineal to patrilocality, so if you switch from living with mum to living with women have to move out, it makes a very big difference. Um, but, but of course it does. But, uh, but of course, you know, that doesn't mean you go back to being primates. I mean, there's huge conquest, if you like, of, of the transition to become homo sapiens culturally uh, in terms of ritual and, and formal kinship and all sorts of things mean that language is going to stay. Um, but on the other hand, you're going to get more conflict. You're going to get more misunderstandings. You're going, you might begin to get more headhunting or warfare or cattle stealing and stuff. So, um, so the, the kind of community-wide laughter, harmony, linkages between different groups across, across the landscape that you find among egalitarian and hunter-gatherers, those will begin to, um, to suffer. There's no doubt about it. So uh, places like parts of Australia, Papua New Guinea, many parts of the Amazon, you do get, a, if you like, a breakdown. Not a, it's not that people don't speak language, but what ha begins to happen is that you get another language in many areas replacing spoken language. You get the language of violence, war, hunting. I don't know. I mean, things sort of go wrong. And, uh, and eventually you end up with, a, with where we are today in the world, where, yes, we, we, you and I were talking to each other. We've got language. But, but our, does language govern the planet? I'm afraid not. It's all sorts of other things govern the planet. In, uh, politics is much more, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I won't go into it all, all the politics of it all. But we're, we're not, we're not a, we're, we're not a self-governing planet. Organizing our lives through language, there's all kinds of stuff which is getting in the way, in terms of, uh, you know, weapons research, borders, corporations. I mean, you know, stuff which is getting in the way of even surviving as a, as a species in, in, the, in, in the time of climate change. So yes, we've got language. But um, you know, we're, we're no longer we're no longer really in, in, in charge of our own lives through language. And I, th I would argue that that did begin with the breakdown of the early of the egalitarian of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Uh, egalitarianism of our hunter-gatherer ancestors it goes back a long way, but not all that far. It goes back what nine thousand years, fifteen thousand years, something like that was the beginning of a big turning point from a, an essentially egalitarian way of life to an increasingly exploitative and and divisive political and social structures and do you think that it could be possible it could ever be possible for humans to live in social circumstances where language would not exist they wouldn't have language because i mean because the basic prerequisites would not be there i think there will always be pockets of trust and love and affection and you know among us as, as humans but it, it's pockets it's uh, you know uh, so yes I, I would i would argue that uh, where you get despotism where you get savage exploitation and hierarchy in you know then yes language is taking a back seat taking a back seat to other forms of more coercive communication um, backed up by violence so, but I mean, to completely lose language would be no. I, that would be that would be inconceivable. I'd have thought we'd, we'd be dead long before that happened. <clears throat> okay, very well. So, uh, Doctor Knight, just before we go, uh, where can people find your work on the internet? Um, 
Well, uh, okay. I mean, Radical Anthropology probably is the best place to go. So radicalanthropology.org, you'll find it there. But, uh, but, but, but there's also my website, chris, um, chrisknight.co.uk. And there's also another website where my stuff on Chomsky is to be found, which is um, Science and Revolution. Um, I can't remember what is it, scienceandrevolution.org, I think, or scienceandrevolution.com. Um, but science and revolution in one word, and I think you'll find it there, where my, where my writing on, on, on Noam Chomsky in particular is to be found. Okay, very well. So I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Knight, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would like to ask you to please consider supporting the show. You will have links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dazarawuji, Widen Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akian Gilligan, Sergio Codrian, uh, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Jason Party. Thank you for all.